Good morning. Last weekend was a great weekend for me on a couple of uh, counts. Uh, first of all, uh, it was fun to be in Tennessee and to see the leaves all turning. That was great. But it was a special pleasure for me and for Jeanette to be a part of uh, Jeff Horch's wedding. It was one of those interesting occasions when God showed up. And I can't even describe exactly what that means, but everybody that was there sensed it. And the other part of my pleasure uh, related to last weekend was coming back and listening to Steve's message on 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not sure that you will ever comprehend how much joy it gives me to watch uh, people, to watch my earpiece fall off here, to watch people develop in their spiritual gifts and to excel uh, in the gift of teaching and in other gifts as well. So it was a great pleasure for me to watch and to listen to uh, Steve. This is not going to be a good day. (laughs) I'll screw the bulb in. That'll do it. All right. Another interesting thing happened in in the last few weeks that is related to the message, which is Lesson 13. You punsters will notice I have tongues in check, and uh, that might uh, ring a bell with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 through 25. But in dealing with the, the issue of the gift of tongues... I had an email from somebody that uh, was formerly a part of our body and, and uh, was in another part of the world, and they were dealing with a problem that was related to the gift of tongues. And so uh, I responded uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and, and set out some of the principles and guidelines that I thought this text uh, had to, to bear on that subject. And I did something uh, that I've not done before, but I have uh, several trusted friends who would be among those who are not only non-cessationists, but who would privately uh, practice tongues. And so I copied them and I said, I would be interested to know what your response to my comments might be. And the interesting thing was that, that one, we did not disagree at all upon the text or the principles that are laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And secondly, that everything they said with respect to their experience with tongues conformed to the standards that Scripture sets down for the way in which they're to be exercised. And I personally don't know how to debate somebody who does it uh, right does it according to scripture. And so it was one of those interesting conversations that we had together without debate and, and with honesty and candor and, and a real sense of unity. And, and for me, that was a very unique experience and one that I found enjoyable. Well, why do we need this study? Because the, the issue of uh, tongues is still out there and has to be dealt with, uh, as I just mentioned, from my own experience. It's there in life and ministry, and the reality is Paul forces us to, us to deal with it because here it is in our text. And Paul talks about the superiority of prophecy over the gift of tongues. And since I went to the trouble of, of uh, defining prophecy as I understand it, as I understand the scriptures uh, define it, then we probably need to spend a little time this morning talking about the uh, gift of tongues and how all of that uh, relates as well. So we'll talk about that in a moment. 
I do have uh, a couple of preliminary remarks, and that is, one, as you know, I'm not really technically a cessationist. Having said that, I need to also say that I have not ever spoken in tongues, and I don't know that I ever will. So I'm not coming at this from the standpoint of somebody who's trying to defend their experience because it isn't my experience. I'm, I'm simply trying to come at it with a certain degree of integrity in terms of what the scriptures themselves say. I added a point here this morning, uh, and that is I am a cold rationalist. And, and my wife could tell you that. I, I don't know about your marriage in the first year or two, but... But I was always saying to my wife, but that's not the point. And, and I, I couldn't understand why cold, masculine logic did not carry the day. But, but this text, a, a, a preacher in Tacoma, a Presbyterian preacher named Rob Rayburn, has a, a message on this text. I think it's called The Supremacy of the Intellect. And, and, and so you, you have to be warned when somebody who leans in that direction speaks uh, uh, on the subject. And, and in, indeed, Paul is, I think, saying that the mind is foremost in terms of our relationship with God, not to the exclusion of other things, but in terms of the, the guidelines that, that, uh, that are mentally set there for us in Scripture and that we must come to grips with. So all I'm saying is I'm one of those sort of rationalist types, and, and you all know that within Christianity there are the cerebrals and then there are the emotors. And I guess I'm saying I'm a cerebral and I might as well just fess up to it. And you just have to write off some of what I say to them. All right, yeah, it's old Bob, and there he is. But uh, that's what this text is about is about how important our mind is in terms of our worship and our relationship to God, not to the exclusion of other things. Okay, let's talk about our handling of the text. Hermeneutics is just a $5 seminary word that means what are you going to do with the passage that you're dealing with. And, and the first principle I think we have to say is that we cannot let experience, in particular bad experience, dictate our doctrine. I remember in the, in the good old days, or maybe they weren't so good, but I remember in the old days at least, people used to say the problem with the charismatic movement is they let their experience be their doctrine. And yet when I would watch and listen to a number of those who were non-charismatics, their argument was really based upon their experience with charismatics. And so what they were saying is, my experience with this is negative, therefore, I don't accept it. Well, we've got to be careful on that count, too, I think. Secondly, a caution about culture. We are Westerners. I think if you read your emails lately from some of our brothers who are, one of our brothers in particular who is, in the Middle East, you know that he's constantly trying to bring us up to speed with the fact that we think in a particular way and that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily think exactly like we do. And we have to come to terms with that and reckon with the way other people think. And so we approach this in a Western sort of way. And, and maybe that should tell us that our culture may not be the final word our culture and our experience may not be the final word. For example, uh, outside of the, uh, the gift of tongues for a moment, uh, exorcism. Uh, you know, that's one of those things that I think many people in this part of the world, they, they think about exorcism as, as something that's just out there. 
But for people in other parts of the world, maybe even people in certain parts of this country, exorcism is a very real entity because demon possession is real. And just because it's not a part of our experience culturally doesn't mean it isn't a reality that we should come to terms with. So that may be a a factor we need to take into consideration. My assumption as I approach the subject of tongues in 1 Corinthians is that it's no different than the tongues that we see in Acts. I I don't see an Acts kinds of tongues and a 1 Corinthians kind of tongues. And, And you remember that Paul was in Acts chapter 19 when the, uh, the believers who received baptism at Ephesus received the gift of the Spirit and experienced the gift of tongues. So the tongues of Acts, in my opinion, is the tongues that we're dealing with here, and we don't have two different brands somehow that we need to differentiate between. Fourth, I like to take clear texts and just take them plainly at face value. And one of those clear texts that I think we have tended to avoid is forbid not speaking in tongues. I mean, it's just, it's a simple, straightforward command, and we ought to be careful that we don't throw that aside, cast it aside with some kind of logic that perhaps is, is not really true to Scripture. And related to that is my fifth point. We need to be cautious about inference and complexity. Let me, let me turn the, the, the horse around a little bit for you and, and uh, play this out in a way that most of us would probably agree with. When amillennialists come along, amillennialists are those who don't believe there is a thousand-year reign, uh, and yet in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, at least four times it's said, 1,000 years. And the amillennialist argument goes, I know it seems to say a thousand years, but when you look at this passage from the whole of Scripture, then somehow it, those plain, simple, straightforward statements just aren't there. And, and I have to say to you, I, I, I get nervous when people set aside plain statements and, and, and they replace them, set them aside with fancy, long, complicated, inferential arguments. It just makes me nervous. Now, if that's true with the amillennialist in Revelation chapter 20, then it needs to be true of us as well when we come to these passages where Paul says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. Forbid not speaking in tongues. These kinds of things. Despise not prophetic utterances. We need to take those things at face value and not say, well, if you really understood the whole of Scripture, you know, then somehow they don't mean what they say. We do have to interpret Scripture in the light of all of Scripture, but we need to be careful that we're not setting aside clear texts. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. I won't name names on this because these are people I respect, but one of the men that I respect a great deal when it says, Paul says that I speak in tongues more than any of you, the explanation was that what Paul did, what he was referring to is a practice of going into the synagogues and because tongues was assigned to unbelievers, that Paul would go into all these synagogues and speak in tongues, and that was, and he did that a whole lot, so he did it more than any of them, and that's what it's talking about. The problem is, we have a lot of accounts of Paul going into synagogues, and never once has that said. So to me, that's just, that's just straining to, to take a clear statement and somehow make it less than, than a plain statement. I remember one time, 
a person that I knew that I was discussing this with uh, said, well, I believe that, uh, that when Paul says I speak in tongues more than any of you, that means I know more foreign languages than all of you. It just doesn't cut it with me. That's just working too hard to make something say something it doesn't. So anyway, that's my kind of bias. Now let's talk about tongues and their characteristics and see if we can define them. I don't think anything I say today is going to shock most of you who know me or have read what I've done or heard what I've said before. But And, and I don't want you to be mad at me or, or, or think I've, I'm wild and woolly, but... I'm just trying to come to terms with with the text as I see it. One, or A in your outline, tongues are a spiritual gift and a manifestation of the Spirit. I hope we can all agree on that point. That's pretty clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 10, verse 28. Paul talks about the gift of tongues and a number of times it's mentioned here in chapter 14. Chapter 12, verse 7, he speaks of gifts as a manifestation of the Spirit. So that's not particularly a surprise to us. Here's probably the bone of contention. I believe it is a language. I'm going to stop right there. To me, it's, it's just very clear from the terms that are used and all the way in which Paul speaks with regard to tongues. Tongues is a language. Now, there may be some subtleties uh, that people differ over. Some would say it's a, it's a known human language, but it's unknown to the speaker or whatever. I'll, I'll go you one farther. I, I'm even willing to say, although I think, I think that Steve is absolutely right when it speaks of, I speak with the tongues of man and of angels, I think that is hyperbole. I don't think necessarily that that has to be, but, but I have to say to you, if you and I could overhear the conversation of two angels... It may not be in, in Bahasa or, or, or some known human language, but it is a language. That's all I'm trying to say. It's a language. Language has vocabulary. Language has structure. It has grammar. So that it, where, where I get off the train it is with those who would somehow say that, that, that tongues is simply the rolling of your tongue or the repetition of certain syllables. Folks, you don't communicate that way. Language has vocabulary and structure, and I believe Paul is clear that it is a language. I think it is a language that enables the Christian to pray and to praise uh, God. In other words, I guess what I'm going to say, and I might as well just say it plainly. It, 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 some people would say that there is a tongues which is evangelistic like Acts and that there is a tongues which is a prayer language. In my opinion, tongues is a prayer language. That, that's, that's, that's its normal function. And, and that seems to be what Paul is talking about here is that that tongues are, are one's ability to communicate in that language. Now, how does it work? This is my theory, and everybody can, can jump on the bus or off. But, but when, I've, uh, when I've traveled around the world and, and watched and observed different languages, and even when I have been involved with, uh, with sign language, I've observed something about language. I, I remember, and maybe some of you have heard me say this, but... Jeanette and I were talking to a deaf girl, and I asked her a question. And she said to me, I, I know how to answer that in sign. I don't, think I, need to, I don't think I know how to answer it in words. 
Well, I always thought that sign language was, you know, A, B, you just, you just spell everything out. But sign language is actually a language. And so there are things that you can say. There may be certain things you can say better in signing than you could say in English. When I go to a, a market, I'm fascinated overseas by these different kinds of fruits or fish or whatever, and I'll say, what's that? The guy will look at his wife and he'll say, well, I don't know what an English word for that is, but our word is, and he'll give you a word. So it seems to me that lang every language has its own beauty. It has its own uh, vocabulary uniqueness. And therefore, every language has a way of saying things that has a uniqueness to it. I think people, for instance, would say that French is probably a real more romantic language. I don't know whether it is or not. But, but, but people realize that languages have the ability to sometimes, one language may articulate something better than another language. And, and so when I look at, at heaven, and I see that men of every tribe and every tongue are going to be there praising God as I see it in their own language. What that says is each language has its own unique flavor. And the, and the reason why tongues can enable and facilitate one's prayer to God is it may enable them to speak uh, in a more articulate way. Now, you may or may not buy that. But, but in my opinion, when Paul describes... Uh, the uh, tongues phenomena here, it is, it is a significant portion of that. Let me just outline some reasons. One, he says, the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. Well, that would certainly be true of somebody who's having a private experience. Uh, he says, I speak in tongues more than any of you, but in church. Well, doesn't that seem to imply to you that, that, that Paul spoke in tongues privately, but he didn't speak in tongues publicly because they weren't interpreted? It seems that way to me. Uh, I don't know how else to take that. Uh, thirdly, he says the one who speaks in tongues speaks to God. And then you'll notice in verses 14 through 17, he talks about prayer and praise and singing that expresses one's emotions toward God. In uh, chapter 14 and verse 28, I'm cheating, I'm moving ahead a little bit, but he says that when there is no interpreter present, you are to speak to yourself and to God. And, and the inference that Paul is making there is that when one does so, he doesn't diminish his own personal or her personal uh, uh, benefit from that phenomena, but because there is no interpretation and no edification for others, then it is not done in a public way. And I would simply say, those with whom I communicated recently said that's precisely what they do, is when they are in a, in a public meeting and, and they sense the Spirit coming upon them, uh, they simply speak to God privately. Nobody ever knows what's going on. I, in fact, I want to say this. My sense is that we are, are often overly influenced by the verbal people on this matter, and, and that it, at least in the past, when there were sort of a charismatic evangelists, you know, they, they were more concerned about getting you to speak in tongues, it seemed, than they were in getting you to know Jesus uh, in terms of studying the Word and, and, and the more cognitive, <laughs> rational stuff. But 
my experience has been that the people that I really know and trust uh, who, who speak in tongues privately, they are good students of Scripture. They are committed to biblical principle. They, they do not deny doctrine that, that, we would, uh, that we would hold to be fundamental to the faith, but they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. And so what I think happens is we hear the people who do all the talking, but there may be people in this body who privately speak in tongues who you nor I are aware of, and rightly so. So be careful that you don't make judgments about these things uh, when, when perhaps there is that private phenomenon. Paul says in verse 14 through 17, singing, praying, thanksgiving to God. And then he says in verse uh, 13, the one who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. Now, it would seem to me that one who is speaking in tongues privately cannot look for some other interpreter to interpret what he's saying. It would need to be the speaker themselves who would need to do that. Now, when you get to the meeting of the church, then it speaks about the one who interprets uh, being present, and you would know that person just as you would know a person with other gifts. All right, I probably belabored that too long, but I, I, I think we need to be careful with, uh, with the text when we deal with these things. Third, tracing Paul's argument in chapter 14. John doesn't think I can do this, but I've still got a few minutes, and so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Verses 1 through 5 is sort of the layout, of the, uh, the lay of the land, and, and Paul is saying, uh, in general terms, prophecy is superior to tongues. And so here's the way it goes. Pursue love. Interestingly, only the New American Standard. I, were you reading the NIV, John? Okay, I thought so. It was and, and, and so is the Net Bible. Pursue love and be eager for spiritual gifts. It's interesting that the New American Standard, and I understand, I have to the words death, you probably knew that, but, but anyway, it translates yet. Pursue love, yet be eager for spiritual gifts. That seems to put those two at odds with each other, and it seems to me the text is saying, pursue love and pursue spiritual gifts. How do you do that? Well, you do that by exercising in the way that Paul is, is going to describe. But especially that you may prophesy. So look at the things that, that Paul says. First of all, he says, prophecy is superior to tongues in a normative way, normally because tongue speakers speak to God. Those who prophesy speak to men. So in a sense, when somebody's speaking in tongues, if other people hear that, they're just overhearing a, con- shall we say, a private conversation. And uh, unless it's interpreted, that's all it is. They have no idea what's going on. Tongue speakers speak to God. Prophets, prophecy speaks to men, verses 2 and 3. He says, tongues convey mysteries that no one understands. Whereas prophecy strengthens, encourages, and consoles. Now, here's one thing I want to just note. It's interesting to me that prophecy and scripture are almost interchangeable here. Doesn't this look like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? All scriptures inspired and profitable for these things. And, and then when you come to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, remember Peter says there we have a, a more sure word of prophecy. 
And he says, because we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration and we heard the Father speaking to the Son and we beheld His glory. So he's saying, these things which we put in print, which are in writing for you, these are prophecy that is more sure because God said, Amen to it. Well, that's pretty solid stuff. So what you could say for prophecy, it seems to me, you could say for Scripture as well. Thirdly, Tongues edify the speaker, prophecy edifies the church. Now, again, that's normally speaking, unless there's some exception, and that's where the caveat comes uh, in point four. Look at the qualifications that Paul puts uh, down. He says, one, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues. Uh, Folks, that's a plain statement. Paul thinks that tongues is something beneficial. And therefore, he wishes all could experience it. But, he says, obviously, I wish more that you would prophesy. And then here's the qualification. Unless he interprets so that the church may be strengthened. Now, it seems to me that normally tongues was not interpreted, and that's the problem. But if it were interpreted then it could be beneficial and be a blessing. Now, when you go to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that's a rather unique situation because it isn't an interpreter that you have there. It is people who actually know those languages. And so as these, the, 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 uh, the, the believing community is, pro, is, is speaking in tongues, They are speaking in known languages that those hearers recognize as their native tongue. And because they hear that, remember the content, though, is they hear them praising God. Now, I think some people would say, well, if, if God wants to give the gift of tongues to missionaries so they can go preach to the natives somewhere, then, then that's okay. But that's not what this says. Tongues is the language in which people are praising God. I think it is a language, and those people overheard it. But Peter preached to them the gospel. They didn't hear the gospel from what they heard from those people. They heard God's praise. Now, there may be some gospel in that, but it's Peter who says, this is what that means. So it seems to me you can't say people are given the gift of tongues so they can go off to some tribe and, and, and speak uh, in their language. And by the way, I haven't heard of that happening. Uh, generally, people have to learn the language to do that. Okay, so prophecy is... Superior to tongues, that's the general statement. Now, Paul's going to play that out in verses 6 through 12. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I help you? How will I edify you unless I speak to you with a revelation or with knowledge or prophecy or teaching? It is similar for lifeless things that make this sound like a flute or a harp. Unless they make a distinction in the notes, how can what is played on the flute or harp be understood? If, for example, the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will get ready for the battle? You know, you remember the old cowboy deals where the cavalry comes along, da 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 You know, that means charge, I guess. And, and, and so you got these things that tell people what to do. If, uh, if, if the guy played the bugle like my neighbor kid years ago played the trumpet, Nobody do anything except close their windows and plug their ears. So you've got to have a certain sound, Paul says. 
So look at what he, what he plays out then in verses 6 through 12. By the way, notice the change I, I, I pointed out between the pronouns from I to you. He starts out in a delicate way saying, if I were to come doing this, rather than just pointing to you. And then he says, now let's apply that to you. Gracious way, I think, of dealing with it. But notice he simply says, edification requires interpretation. When it comes to music, whether it's a flute or a harp or a, or a bugle, there needs to be a distinction in the sounds. There needs to be a way of interpreting that in a way that has meaning. I could go over and play that piano for you and clear this place in a heartbeat. It sounds, but it doesn't have the structure that language has or the, the ability to communicate that it should have. So he says the same way, language must be understood for words to have their meaning, verses 9 through 11. If you, don't, if you can't understand what a person is saying, then it isn't going to make any sense. Think back to the Tower of Babel. Isn't that exactly why God gave languages, different languages? So that all of a sudden you've got guys working and the guy has been saying to him, hand me another brick. And, and now he says it in some other language and they're looking at each other like... Where did you come from? They can't work together. They can't understand because they don't understand the language. And that's why tongues must be interpreted to have meaning. So, he says in verse 12, Seek profitable manifestations of the Spirit so that the church may be edified. Simply playing out the theme that prophecy is superior to tongues in particular when they are not interpreted. If interpreted, it would be a different picture. Now verses 13 through 19, where he's saying interpretation engages the mind and thus edifies both the speaker and the church. And, and now notice the frequency of the word mind. <laughs> Your mind really does matter. I think about my friend Betty Bob Edling. I think it was she who told the story the first time, and it had to do about those of us, there are a few of us, who are getting older. And, and she said something like this, I, I don't mind having to put my hearing aid in the drawer and, and my false teeth on the, on, the, on the cabinet there in front of the sink and all the things that I have to take off because of my old age, but I sure do miss my mind. <laughs> And, and, and what Paul is saying here is, you know, the mind is really important. If your mind is not engaged, then that is a huge deficit. And so he talks about those things that may take place. And it seems to me that Paul is talking both about his private experience and about that which may be involved corporately. And so he says, if I'm going to pray, I want to pray in my spirit, but I want my mind to know what's going on. You know, I'd like to know what I'm saying. There was one time when I really, my back really went south, and I had to borrow a brace from a brother, and I was doing this funeral, and I had to take these pain pills that would choke a horse, and, and it was one of those occasions where even I wondered what I was saying. It was just, it was terrible. I, mean, I missed my mind. And, and Paul is saying, when I pray, if I don't understand the language with which I am in which I am praying, then 
I don't really get it. And so he says, I want to pray in my spirit and with my mind. I want to sing in my spirit and with my mind. I want to give thanksgiving in my spirit and understand that process in my mind. So in verses 14 through 17, he says, uninterpreted tongues don't engage the mind. The mind can't be engaged when it doesn't understand what is said. The speaker is personally not edified, and any who would hear will not be edified either. My sense is, and we'll get into this next week, Lord willing, my sense is when they gathered that the tongue speakers were just lined up and they were grabbing the microphone out of each other's hands, and everybody went over and said, what did he say? That's the foggiest idea. Sometimes that might be good, but generally speaking, it's a bad thing. Certainly it was here. Now notice the caveat again in verses 18 and 19. I speak in tongues more than any of you. I just have to leave that alone and say, it must be because we never see any instance of him doing so in public. Not a part of his preaching. And given what he's saying... It seems to me that there was some private experience that he had that he does not downgrade. He wishes other people had it. But he says, when it comes to church, then I would rather speak a few words that are understood than a lot of words that just go over people's heads. So once again, Paul is not negating tongues, he is simply saying, apart from interpretation, their value is minimal. Now, verse 20 through, verses 20 through 25 really comes now from a different point of view. And, and it adds a perspective which we haven't yet seen. It, one would be inclined from what Paul has said repeatedly that tongues is inferior to prophecy. One might come to the conclusion then why not just forget the whole thing and just just vacate uh, tongues altogether? What good are tongues? What are they good for? If normally they're not interpreted and, and therefore there's a mystery and our mind is not engaged, then what are they good for? And that's what he says in verses 20 through 25. He says, first of all, be mature in your thinking. Does that not take you back to uh, chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I thought as a child, reasoned as a child, and so on. And, and in effect, what he's saying is, you guys really are childish. Your thinking really is immature on this point. So let's, let's smarten up a little bit. Let's be mature in the way in which we look at this. And how is that maturity expressed? In Scripture. And so he says, look at what the Old Testament says about tongues. What was the purpose of tongues so far as the Old Testament was concerned? Now, he takes us to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, in verse 21, where he talks about speaking through people with, with a foreign tongue. But if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49, when God is speaking in the law about what will happen if, if Israel disregards God's law and if they go their own way, he says, the enemy's going to come upon you and they're going to speak a language you don't understand. And then when you come to Isaiah, and you remember now, 
Isaiah is at the point in Israel's history where they have been warned over and over and over again by the prophets. They have been called to repentance and they have rejected that. And so when you come to Isaiah chapter 6 and, and, and Isaiah sees this vision of the holiness of God, he says, whom shall, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And God says to him, go and make this people's heart fat. Make their eyes dim and their ears dull. Lest they understand and turn and repent and are saved. So that's the text that Jesus picks up in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter uh, 3. And, and, uh, and, and explains then on in chapter 4 when he speaks in parables. And his disciples say, why are you speaking in parables? Same thing happens in Matthew. He says, I'm speaking in parables so they will not understand. Not so they will. Parables were not at that moment in time an earthly story to help people understand heavenly truth. They were stories to keep people from understanding truth because they had called the work of the Spirit of God in Jesus the work of Satan. And he says, for that you will never be forgiven. So Jesus spoke in parables in that occasion to keep the truth from being understood. That is precisely the text that Paul picks up in Acts chapter 28. After the Jews have gathered there in Rome, he cites that text again and says, they have had their opportunity. It is now past time. So that's what Isaiah is speaking about in chapter 28. He's saying, you'll get the message. The message, the sign is not a sign that people look at and say, oh, oh, now I see. <laughs> it's a sign of condemnation. He's saying, when you hear these people speaking in a language you don't understand, you'll realize judgment has now come. So what he's saying is, the purpose of tongues was to pronounce condemnation. Now, somebody's surely going to come and say, well, what about Acts chapter 2? Well, in Acts chapter 2, it was exactly that. Peter says, what do these things mean? This means the day of judgment is coming upon you. It is at hand. And unless you repent, that judgment will come. In 70 AD, it did. They heard foreign voices, and they got scattered about all around the world because of their disbelief and their rejection of the Lord Jesus. But he says it's actually prophecy that will explain the gospel to them. He says, if you were in church as you normally are and as the experience normally goes and everybody's getting up and speaking in tongues, the unbeliever comes in and looks at that and says, they're nuts, they're nuts. I didn't understand a thing they said. They're crazy. That's all it means to the unbeliever. But if one prophesies... It reveals the thoughts and intents of their heart. They're convicted of their sin. Isn't that what Hebrews 4 says of the Scripture? That the Scripture is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It reveals what's in us. And people say, whoa, that's me. So that people come to faith. So in that sense, you have to say, prophecy is actually better for believers and unbelievers. Tongues only serves to condemn the unbeliever. And it doesn't edify the believer unless interpretation occurs. Prophecy will edify believers and lead unbelievers to faith if God has prepared their hearts. Now, where do we, where do we conclude? What do we say of all these things? 
Well, I've said this before, but your mind matters. That's actually the title of a booklet by John R. W. Stott. It really is important. And it's more important, I think, now than it was years ago when I said it or when others have said it. I think it's more important. We live in a day which really sets aside the value of rational thought. I, I, I'm not sure whether you, you, you can really understand that, but, but for instance, we were in a day in the modernist culture, we were in a culture where people trusted in science. And so you had, you know, you had these guys and they'd wear these lab outfits and it was like, here's Dr. Schmuck uh, saying, uh, this pill will make you better. And so if a guy had, had a doctor's thing on, you said, well, he has to know. That isn't true anymore. That is not the way. They're, they're moving away from that kind of advertising because people are more about how they feel than about what's real. And when you look in the evangelical church, it seems to me that you've got to say our postmodern culture is turning the church on its ear in the sense that people don't want to sit through and reason through thoughts. I'm saying they don't want to listen to sermons. And I'm not just saying my sermons. I'm, I'm saying anybody's sermons. They're not into sermons. Chuck Colson said years ago that, that because of this soundbite society that we're in, People don't sit down and think their way through arguments. They do not reason as they should. And one of the things about a sermon is it helps you to work your way through, to think your way clearly to a conclusion. And it's not just true of sermons. It's true of books. Ask Ron Manus how the, how the pattern of a book checkout's going in our library. And I've got to tell you, people are not checking out the same kinds of books now or as many books now as they did back yonder. Why is that? It's because I don't think we value enough the role that the mind plays. Now, I understand that I'm a cerebral. I understand that, that within our movement, we're all inclined to be more cerebral. We have to be also emotionally in touch with God. I'm not minimizing that. I'm saying when our emotions are not harnessed by biblical declaration and sound theological thinking, we're going to go down the bunny trail of all kinds of really weird stuff. And the Corinthians were there. The priority of prophecy over tongues. That's the things in which God has declared himself in words. And that now we have recorded in the scripture. Let's not forget the prohibition to prohibit tongues. Forbid not speaking in tongues. We have to say that. Is prophecy better than tongues? Yes. Is tongues to be forbidden? No. But when they are practiced, they must be practiced in the way in which the scriptures declare. Lastly, love pursues and practices gifts in order to edify others. This text started, remember, pursue love and spiritual gifts. So that great sermon you heard last week about love and about how all of these, the exercise of these gifts can be without value, without benefit to the one who is gifted, to the others who hear or experience it. 
All of that is played into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And what Paul is saying is, if you really love your brother, your desire will be to serve them, to edify him or her, and that will happen when you exercise the most beneficial gifts in the way in which God has prescribed. We'll deal with that more next week. But that's what this is about. Love seeks to edify others. And that's the guiding principle for the exercise of spiritual gifts. Does it edify? If it doesn't, then set it aside, at least so far as the public declaration of that is concerned. Well, I want to talk more about that next week because that's really significant for us in terms of the way in which we go about the meeting of the church. But let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for all the gifts that you have given to your body, and we simply ask that you would grant us the love that we need to seek to edify our brothers and sisters and others apart from Christ. Help us to exercise those gifts that are most beneficial in a way that manifests love in Jesus' name. Amen.